0: So here we are, uh, another podcast from Suffolk Money supported by King's Fleet. And I have come out to it's an amazing place, Great War Huts. It's uh, hosted in Suffolk not far from Bury St. Edmonds, that sort of part of the county, Uh, we're going to be talking to Taff Gillingham, uh, one of those behind this museum all about the First World War. He's standing in front of a a gong. So what's the point of this gong? So this is our guardroom, and
1: in front of every guardroom there was always a gong, and that was for sounding the hour and the quarter hour and the half hour and the alarm and things like that, so there was always a guardroom gong.
0: we'll we'll bash the gong, and then you'll catch up with us in the trenches. november a really important date in the calendar the 11th of november and you're hearing this from the 10th onwards and if i say remembrance armistice and i tell you i'm standing in trenches then it all sort of comes together with taff gillingham and Taff, well, he has various hats as well. Do you want to tell me your hats? Because you've got historical, you've got your khaki devil hat as well.
1: Well, that's right. Yes, a uh, military historian. That's really the day job. Historical advisor for film and television work. Uh, obviously, we, uh, we now have Great War Huts here at Horsted. Uh, this sort of embryonic First World War Museum. Uh, yes, yeah, so all sorts, really. All sorts of various assorted hats, most of which have a kind of military theme to them.
0: <laughs> I mean, and, you've, and it's amazing you've made a living out of it as well as a, a, it being a, a passion as well. Let's talk armistice, let's talk remembrance. Just take me back because is First World War where the history starts really?
1: Well yes, I mean the reason that we remember uh, the the, the British and Commonwealth dead on the 11th of November is that the First World War uh, really as far as most people are concerned came to an end at 11 o'clock on the 11th of November. Uh, So literally at at 11... O'clock on the eleventh day of the eleventh month in uh, in 1918, it wasn't the end of the war. It was an armistice, uh, so really the war carried on until the the treaties were finally signed in 1920. But as I say, to all intents and purposes, for most people, that meant that the fighting stopped, and it was a a suitable time to 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 commemorate. And in the years following, um, it became a tradition which which is still carried on to this day. I mean, a lot of people say nowadays, oh well, why don't they alter it to to the anniversary of ve day because it'd be warmer but i think in a way I, I, I think there's something more somber about having the commemoration in november uh, the guards in their gray greatcoats instead of their bright scarlet jackets that they would be wearing in the summer so i think yeah i think it's uh, i think it's far more appropriate really to, uh, to to commemorate it on on what was such a, a huge day in 1918
0: and, and, of course, since then, there's all the debate because we, we remember anyone who's fallen in conflict, don't we, since as well?
1: Well, that's right. I mean, the whole idea of having a, a national moment, if you like, of, of commemoration is that it, it means that anybody who lost somebody in war can remember them. Uh, there's a focal point for it. And, and obviously, even if for those people that didn't lose anyone at all, it means that there's, there's a point that they can remember all those that did. So I think, it's, um, I think, I think that that's, that's the power of remembrance uh, 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 certainly remembrance sunday as it is now i mean it for many years it was always on the 11th but uh, then they realized like really quite sensibly that uh, moving it to the nearest sunday was the most sensible thing to do because it didn't affect work and everything else uh, and it meant that everybody could then take part in it should they wish to go to their local memorials or nowadays watch it on the television and and, and really feel that like they were part of it
0: and and here you you're telling part of that story and uh, explain how I mean, a, world, a First World War visitor centre. I mean, explain how this has come about. There's quite a history behind it. Well, there is. I mean,
1: um kev smith and i started a company called khaki devil to provide military uniforms equipment weapons props historical advice and things like that back in 2001 uh, i'd already been giving historical advice for film and television work longer than that but in 2001 the bbc uh, produced a, a series called the trench where we took 25 fellas from hull and they had to live the part in a trench system in france and just on the just by chance really we, we ended up setting up a company to provide all the uniforms and the equipment for it and it sort of grew from there and as part of the company we created a trench system on the outskirts of Ipswich which we used for for big jobs really mostly uh, things like the Downton Abbey Series 2 uh, the the films of Journey's End and Private Peaceful the Sainsbury's Christmas Truesad but actually on the other side to it there was also student productions and people like Great British Bake Off and Blue Peter would turn up just to do their little bits as well um But every time we did one of these high-profile productions, we'd just get inundated with people saying, can I bring the school? Can I bring the WI? Can I bring the University of Third Age? Can I just come and have a look? And you couldn't because it wasn't built for really for public visits. It's not really safe for public visits. And more important than that, we'd built it as a film set. So all these people wanted to come, wanted to see a First World War trench, whereas what you would have seen was, was a film set. So we thought, well... Clearly, there's an interest in the First World War amongst the wider British public. People want to know stuff. They, they, there's a sort of a thirst for knowledge. And the British public are actually quite badly served for First World War history. There's a very simplistic narrative which tells you nothing. And we thought, well, we've got the opportunity to do something to change that view and make people think about it in a different way. So, so we found this spot at Horsted near Berry St Edmunds at Brook Farm, and it was perfect for what we wanted to do. There was enough room to build a... Um, a, a small army camp of uh, what were originally going to be replica buildings until we started finding real ones. Um, <laughs> plenty of room for a car park, a nice big building to put the uniform and equipment hire stuff in. Uh, there's a lovely old Victorian barn that we could convert and turn into a cafe. And then there was plenty of room for building trenches, which stretched off down into the woods. And what we loved about it was, A, there were no sort of pylons or anything modern to sort of spoil the view. But secondly, at a certain time of year, uh, what would have been the german trenches stretching up sitting on the high ground in front of it uh, which is where they were for most of the war so even the topography worked for it so it was it was just perfect for what we wanted to do so so we bought it and and the and the the rest is history really
0: but I, I mean it's an amazing you have lots of people who come and help don't you you've got volunteers that come and do some of the work
1: well that's right yes i mean uh, as as with all these places uh, volunteers are absolutely vital uh, kev on his own couldn't manage but he's got uh, you know all sorts of people we've got family and friends but but mostly uh, people who have just got bitten by the bug who just love coming and helping with trench building or repairing huts or, or clearing the river or you name it all sorts of activities that go on we have volunteer weekends twice a year um and they're brilliant because in the space of two days it just pushes everything forward probably three months really compared to what you could do if there was just one or two of you at any one time um, And we're now starting to get a lot of school visits as well. And to be honest, hardly any from Suffolk at the moment. They've not really discovered us yet, but they're coming from as far away as Southampton, West Wales, and even quite a few now coming down from Scotland, from places like Edinburgh and Falkirk, uh, because they've really decided that actually eight and a half hours to get here uh, really is better than spending 12 hours to get to Dover before you even start your first war trip. And the crucial thing that they all say, all the schools say, because we only have one school at a time... There's no distractions, so when you speak to them six months later and do a bit of a follow up chat with the school teachers, they say the, the the level of retention, the stuff the kids are remembering, is much much higher after they've been here than it has been when they've gone on other trips and, and actually gone overseas themselves. So, so that's a real positive that, that, uh, that the stuff that we're teaching them is sticking and uh, and they're remembering it.
0: So, so try and explain for me then. So, trenches, corrugated iron. I mean, these I assume are built as as they would have been built
1: yes i mean what kev decided this time because kev's chief engineer he decided that he was going to build everything as per the manual so eventually we will have trenches uh, from 1914 15 16 and 17 um in 1918 it was pretty much a war of movement the big german march offensive in one direction and then from the 8th of august onwards uh, what the british called the battles of the last hundred days going the other way so very little trench warfare in 1918 um what we built to begin with is the 1916 section because it's the most familiar stuff uh, and the idea during the pandemic when we, when we suddenly realised that the schools had, couldn't go to France we thought well we, there's no reason why we can't build some trenches here for them and so Kev's used the original manuals from the time so everything's the width that it says it would have been, the size of the regimental aid posts, the dugouts, everything. Uh, with, with the caveat that the manuals also say this is the optimum size, if you want to make it bigger or smaller it's up to you, but he's gone with what, what the, the manual said the optimum was um, I mean even the, the duck boards which are the, the wooden slatted boards that you walk on on the floor, um, the, the top of those, the, the slats, are all made of um, floorboards that he'd saved from Darsham Village Hall, we couldn't save the whole building, but we've managed to save a lot of the a lot of the original materials, so you actually get to walk on 100 odd year old uh, timbers which were made during the First World War, so as far as is possible he's just made it as real as an experience as you could possibly have
0: it makes you realize that so in a war situation these are these are quite i mean they're not something you knock up in two minutes and and they become part and parcel so you will could have stayed in these and fought at, sort of fired at the germans and they become sort of almost static
1: <laughs> well i mean that's the idea really i mean the, the whole purpose for building trenches is to make it safe from people shooting at you from a distance so uh, they won't protect you from shells dropping on top of you nothing will really protect you from that unless you're very deep underground but they will stop bullets that are coming across the surface towards you and snipers and things like that uh, so yeah that was the idea it made a, a relatively safe environment to live with uh, they they, they I, I hesitate to say they were permanent because even at the time trenches collapsed trenches got damaged and when they got beyond the point of repairing you just dug another one next to it and, and just backfilled the other one so all of the time they were constantly moving and evolving but in in terms of you know but they evolve completely from 1914 onwards so what starts as just drainage ditches in the side of the field uh, by 1915 they're starting to become much more familiar as what we would think of as trenches now but they're they're very they're bodged it's a very much the year of bodge there's bits of old house and all sorts of old rubbish in there just to sort of put them together but by 1916 the royal engineers and the and, and units behind the lines are that are making preform sections that the duckboards would be made behind the lines and brought forward. So it wasn't fellas trying to cobble stuff together just to, to exist in the front line. So it was much, much more um, organised. and uh, And as I say, that's really the trenches most of us are familiar with because they're the ones that pop up on the film footage on virtually every documentary you've ever seen.
0: (laughs) That's sandbags holding them up as well. You said we have a simplistic view of of the First World War and it is, you know, that it was horrendous, that it was like the the trenches were full of water, people got trench foot, and and it it wasn't all like that. I mean, tell tell me your perception of it. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's not
1: even my perception, it's just the truth. I mean, that all of those things happen, there certainly were trenches that did get waterlogged, but not most of the time because once the, the army had got organised, uh, certainly by the time you get into the middle and late 1915, uh, there were trench pumps that pumped the water out. Um, you know, things like trench foot. The, uh, trench, you get trench foot by being immersed in the water too long. So they start a policy that twice a day, in the mornings and evenings, soldiers would take their boots off, they'd take the socks off, uh, they would dry their feet, they would then be covered in whale oil, uh, then they would put on another pair of socks that were drier than the ones they'd taken off. And all of that was inspected by officers to make sure that was done. But then they take it a stage further and the army then decide that the soldiers themselves won't get punished for getting trench foot. But the officer in command of them will get punished if they get trench foot. And miraculously, the, the figures for trench foot dry up continu- considerably the moment that suddenly it's going to be the officer's problem. So he makes sure that his men don't get trench foot. So a lot of these things were avoidable. avoidable. Um, They certainly happened. There were certainly people that had trench foot. There were people who lost toes and feet because of trench foot. But ultimately, the army found ways around it. But the the problem is that there's always a very simplistic view, which is always the worst and the nastiest and the most unpleasant. Um, In the same way, we had a visitor very recently said, oh, of course, you know, the, the First World War was much worse than the Second Well. I'm not entirely sure where. There were far more people who died in the Second World War. And he said, oh, yes, but there were no Soms or Passchendaels in the Second War. Well, there were. They just didn't happen to happen to the British, you know. But if you look over on the Eastern Front, at Stalingrad, in one battle alone, the Germans and the Red Army lose more men in that one battle than the British lose in both world wars. So, you know, when when we think of incredible slaughter, you know, in the First World War, it, it was nothing compared to some of the slaughter in the Second World War. And... The fact is that most of the time, there was nothing going on. You know, trench warfare is about tedium. That's the biggest enemy. Because if you took the average infantry battalion throughout four years of war, they, they, they were, on average, they were rarely engaged for more than four and a half weeks actually getting out of trenches and fighting the German army. Four and a half weeks out of, out of four years of warfare was typical. Most of the time, holding sections of trench being bored, just repairing things, cleaning things, looking after things, and then moving out and letting somebody else come and do the job. In fact, most British soldiers spent far longer behind the trenches playing football, doing recreation, you know, training, than they ever did in trenches. But, you know, the the narrative, the very simplistic narrative, driven mostly by people that make film and television and and media, you know, has created a sort of a a very simplistic shorthand which just said oh it's all mud, blood, barbed wire, everyone gets killed for nothing, generals are all idiots but the trouble is that once you've squeezed all of this into the, a tiny little ball like that this, this this fascinating story, this war that lasted four years on, on, on you know, half the continents of the world, by the time you've squeezed it into this tiny little ball you then can't tell most of the stories of the First World War and most of those stories are much more interesting and of course, you know, telling the stories of the men that get killed, it's, it's important, it's important they're remembered. But we do remember, the British are incredibly good at remembrance. It's one thing that we do every year and we do it very, very well. But 89% of the fellas that went off to war came home again at the end. You know, 60% of them having never once been in hospital with so much as a broken arm. And their stories hardly ever get told. And that's what we intend to do here because it opens up so many more interesting stories, so many more different angles... Uh, and gives those fellows a
0: voice that they haven't had for a very, very long time. So remember those who fought, including those who, who gave their lives, but also those who came home again. Quickly, give me just... I, mean, I, I know there's quite a lot of trends. <laughs> there is quite a lot of Do you of want trinches? to give us just Absolutely. a little bit of... It. So here, gas alert
1: on. Yes, yes, so you've got a sign here. So a gas alert sign. Uh, very early on, gas is released from cylinders. Um, the, the, there are tubes that go into no-man's land, so they just turn the stopcock, And that means that you need the wind to carry it. So if the gas alert is on, if the sign says it's on, that means that the wind's blowing from the German lines towards ours. If it was turned round and it said gas alert off, then you'd know that the wind was going from ours towards the Germans, in which case you'd know it was safe. Later, they start putting gas in shells, and at that point they could be dropped anywhere, so signs like this would become... And would you wear your mask if it... If it was, oh, yeah, would you yeah be absolutely, a absolutely, absolutely. If there was a gas alert, yeah, there's What, what I want to would. know is, why is there a triangle to play? Oh, there's a triangle. Well, this is one of the many different types of gas gongs, so this particular one... <sharp sound> It happens to be made of a triangle. Uh, I mean, there were gas rattles, uh, three sharp blasts on a whistle. Later, there were gas horns, sort of air horns. It was all about coming up with a noise that was unfamiliar to people in their everyday conversation. So, so you, you would, just would know, a chat, yeah. You'd hear something going on and you'd know to get your gas mask on quickly.
0: I came here last year, and you did uh, you did the Christmas in the trenches, didn't <laughs> you? <by> twilight, <laughs> yeah, tre- and it was it was amazing because it was, it was and you'd you'd got various uh, and actors and so on. Which way should I turn here? Uh, well,
1: there's a little uh, uh, if, if you went to the right, there's a little sap that takes you out uh, to an observation post, which is a bit uh, a bit of a tight squeeze. So <laughs> you'd okay. better take my word for that if I were you. Uh, but if we head off to to the left. That would take us along the front line. So corned beef tins rusting. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing to begin with, the the army were absolutely obsessed with hygiene. Uh, During the Boer War 12 years earlier, more British soldiers had died of disease than they had died of gunshot wounds. So the army were obsessed with making sure that nobody died of disease, if at all possible. So to begin with, all that kind of rubbish were cleared up. They then realised quite quickly that... What they should do: the empty tins should all be thrown just in front of their trenches. Because then, if you had ten feet of of metal tins, anybody trying to creep up on you at night, you'd hear them coming. So it made an alarm. So that's why all the rusty tins then get thrown in front of the trench.
0: That's a very good excuse. I'm intrigued because there are different heights of trenches. Where we started, the trenches, my head stuck up above them. But some some you're in deeper trenches as well. Well, that's right.
1: The uh, communication trenches really designed to be used just uh, at night when uh, when when you can't be seen. the idea is that if there's a, you hear shells coming or there's an artillery barrage, you would then be able to get down low and get some protection. Whereas by the time you get into the front line, then at that point, then you need to be screened from the Germans so that they can't see you when you're actually moving about during the day. Periscope to your, to your right oh, there. This, yes, trench periscopes. And again, the, uh, there's a little shutter. And the idea there is that you close that down to the very narrowest point so that if a German bullet hits the glass at the top, it will stop the big fragments sort of hitting you in the face at the bottom. So it would be just enough for you to peer out over the top and... Uh And and see what was going on. Make sure no no
0: one's leapt out and heading (laughs) towards you as well. Am I right in thinking that uh, there was plastic surgery and so on became uh, developed hugely during uh, during the First World War because soldiers, a lot of soldiers did get facial injuries just because you know sticking their heads above.
1: Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, we very often think of the of the sort of facial surgery from the Guinea Pig Club in the Second World War, the pilots who were badly burnt, but that started during the first world war so harold gillis was was the pioneer of literally taking chunks of flesh from your shoulder and growing noses on the faces and all sorts of stuff in fact um archibald mckindo who was famous for uh, running the guinea pig club in the second world war and repairing all those fighter pilots who'd been burnt um he, he worked under gillies in the first world war and learned all that yeah all, all those lessons there so so really a lot of that surgery started in the first world war and and Fellas who literally would have had no face, had their faces rebuilt, you know, with, uh, with, with that sort of literally groundbreaking surgery. It's well, quite,
0: quite a, Yeah, and a sombre thought as well, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so so the, you could get people to come... This is like a maze, isn't it, <laughs> it really? Is like you could maze. see how, how many you could lose in a day.
1: <laughs> oh, plenty. <laughs> we could lose plenty of them. Yep, a latrine coming up. So, the um, again, it's uh, very popular with school kids, anything that involves disgusting and, uh, and unpleasant. So... Be... Oh, it's three-seater! The <laughs> three-seater, very cosy. So to begin with, um, very early trenches had a, a latrine just dug in the ground and then obviously the problem with that, if it rains heavily and the water table is quite high then suddenly you're sharing your trench with all sorts of unpleasantness. But very quickly they realised that if you have uh, large buckets uh, with seats over the top which are hinged so that you can take the buckets out and put empties in, um, they, they can be very very easily cleaned and you can take all that unpleasantness away and deal with it elsewhere. Um, and again, it comes back to that obsession that they had with um, with hygiene. So this would all be sprinkled with chloride of lime to make sure there was no disease. And the, the buckets were taken away. The liquid was poured away behind the lines. They would then burn the solids and they would sell what was left to the French to spread on the fields. So we think we invented recycling. But at the time, they literally recycled everything.
0: It's fascinating how... you know established four years it became like an industry oh completely
1: i mean the the salvage generally was a massive thing i mean your your, um your your mess tin if it got a couple of bullet holes in it and you dropped it and trod on it it was still cheaper to get a french tinsmith to repair it than it was to buy a new one so everything was repaired i mean by the time you get to the middle of 1917 they're recycling nearly ten thousand steel helmets a month take them back in, take the liners out, take the chin strap off, clean it, paint it, new liner, new chin strap, where it goes again, because it's cheaper than
0: the new ones. Everything is recycled. So so there you've got the latrines, which obviously are needed. Kitchens, living quarters, were all were they all here as well? Well, the, most of the food was cooked
1: behind the lines, so that would be cooked by the, the battalion cooks. They had uh, horse-drawn cookers, and then the hot food would be brought up every day. Um, the the fellows could do a limited amount of cooking themselves, just using little Tommy cookers, little spirit stoves, but most of the hot food, like I say, was, was brought up from behind the lines because the last thing you want is to uh, be sort of having big clouds of smoke and <laughs> wood smoke or whatever, yeah. <laughs> giving away your position and then the Germans dropping a shell on top of you.
0: Oh, look, there's a, So this is, is this a, a, a hut or something along those lines? So this is a company headquarters dugout. So I'd have to salute as I came in, I? Well, <laughs> it's quite
1: dark. But... In fact, what you'd never do in the trenches normally is salute, because if you salute someone, then a German sniper might spot the fact that you've saluted someone and then shoot them, because they'll know that they're an officer. So, so dis- saluting was discouraged in the front line. Um, so the company headquarters dugout would have the officers in, and there was always about half the amount of bedding needed for all of them, so that any one time half of them were on duty, half of them were asleep. And then what you'd have joined to it, normally with a couple of curtains to give them some privacy, but through this little alleyway... Step through the doorway, under the curtains. You would then have the oh, wow. company signalers, And again, one of them's permanently on duty. There's a bed here, so the other one's asleep. And then if an important message turns up, the signaler will take the message. He will then wake up the fellow who's asleep and get him to either take the message next door or the other fellow will take over. So there's always somebody permanently taking or sending messages.
0: And, and what, what sort of... Would they be, you know, you're going to be going over the top in half an
1: hour or...? It, it could literally be anything. I mean, uh, a very famous story. One uh, one officer, I can't think it was Charles Carrington or one, one of the others, remembered uh, watching a runner bringing a message through all the muck and mud at, uh, at Passchendaele. And um, and three runners had got killed getting to him, but the last one finally gets to him. And, and the message is simply that the practice of left-handed saluting will cease at midnight. <laughs> and And, of course... You look at that and you think, well, that's insane, you know, you're you're sending these messages and, uh, you know, people are getting killed for such nonsense. But, of course, the trouble is when you issue an order, then the order needs to go to everybody at the same time. And the fact that some of them are in uh, dangerous places, the message still needs to so get they, to so them. So
0: would they be run? People would just take... Yeah, so take if, if
1: you got to the stage where you couldn't send a, a, a message via field telephone and using Most flags don't. or whatever were, were impractical, then the, the, the final sort of default was just sending a runner on foot. So, yeah... Yeah, or pigeons, of course.
0: I would say you're pointing to the pigeons. <laughs> oh, yes. yes you, have you're, you, know, you don't have you your know. own pigeon here, though. It's <laughs> a, a fake here, one, but he's a fake one. <laughs> so, so people watching things like Blackadder, you know, which is which is poignant in a way, isn't it, Blackadder? It sort of tells the story in a, in a very clever way. As, as we mark remembrance, what what? Should we? I mean, I always look at the names of the people that were lost and the mum think of the mums who've lost four sons and yeah. so on. So should we, should we should remember them, but also remember the others that... that...
1: I mean, I think the thing is that, you know, we're, that re- re- there is no rigid rule for remembrance. People remember people who were killed in their families... There are people who remember old friends who they knew who were killed, uh, people who'd been at school with them. Uh, People remember people being killed in conflicts in other countries. I mean, but it also means that even if you didn't have any relatives and you didn't know anyone, that you can just remember what they did on everybody else's behalf just out of respect. Because in reality, most of the people that, that I think of when I think of remembrance now... I never met them. I don't actually remember them. Remembrance is a kind of odd term, really, because mm. we don't remember most of them at all because they were long gone. So it's a, it's a, it's a concept, isn't it? It's an idea. It's a, it's a thing. It's just something that's, that's worth doing. It's something that's important. It's something that, that actually... It's very, very easy to forget about things in the past... As we've seen in more recent times, if you do forget about what happens in the past, it does have a really, really irritating habit of cropping up again and biting you.
0: Let's move to a great war hut, because you mentioned right at the beginning that this you were going to have your own create your own, but I think it was a casual word on, on a on a BBC radio. It Suffolk, was, yes, with a Suffolk certain, afternoon a show with local me. presenter. <laughs> that ended up with the, with the, the whole you've got loads now, haven't you? So <laughs> should we go and have a look at those? Yes, let's. You're listening to the Suffolk Money podcast uh, supported by Kingsfleet and uh, may uh, gather. Uh, we were in the war trenches here at Horstead. It's the Great War Huts. I've been talking to Taft Gillingham and it's quite a breezy day outside. So outside in the courtyard and then stepping inside in an original uh, war hut from the First World War. It's set out, I think this is the one where you have talks and all sorts of things. They've got a bit of M.R. James poetry coming up again, I think, in just a little while. Taft Gillingham has uh, found his seat at the front. So, so am I right? This is an, an original war
1: hut? Yes, it is. It is. It's, uh, in fact, being pedantic, it would have been two huts originally. Um, it, it was, um, it, it, it's been two huts joined together at Colchester at some point in the middle of the war to make a recreation hut. So what would have been two separate barracuts, they went, oh, we need somewhere for the soldiers to have some entertainment. So they joined two huts together, uh, raised it up a bit in the middle with some gas pipe and put a stage at one end so they could have concerts and film shows. Uh, and then the rest of it would have had tables for them to play cards, have a drink, write letters home and things like that. So this would have been a, a recreation hut, which really is what we've put it back to.
0: And, and I know that originally you were going to just create your own, but, but in fact, <laughs> you've ended up with, with loads. And these are all ones that had been, they were reused after the war, weren't they? So they were village halls until very recently and so on.
1: Well, that's right, yes. I mean, uh, I mean, Kev Smith and I had been collecting First World stuff since we were kids, but I don't think either of us, when we sat out to do this, had, had even contemplated the idea that you could collect First World War buildings as well. It, it, it would have been a completely mad idea. So the, the plan was to build replica first war huts to put exhibitions in to uh, well like this one to, ha- to have somewhere for concerts and exhibitions then just after we got the planning permission which must have been early 2014 uh, I was doing a, an interview my monthly interview with a certain well-known local radio Suffolk radio personality who I'm not a million miles from right now and something that we'd been speaking about had sparked a memory nothing at all to do with what we were talking about but it had sparked a memory that I'd read in the Ipswich Society newsletter that Ipswich Labour Club had had an eight-year battle to get rid of an old wooden shed. And as I left Radio Suffolk Studios, I just thought, I wonder what the old wooden shed is. And, and there and then drove into the centre of Ipswich, into Falcon Street, um, and the, the little alleyway that led into the, the car park. And as I turned the corner, there was this really quite dilapidated-looking building which turned out to be Ipswich Labour Club's function room. And it was this this hut that we're now sitting in. It was, as I say, two barrack huts that had been turned into a recreation hut at Colchester. Uh, There were were three wooden camps at Colchester. uh, Reed Hall, I can't think of the other two. So we don't know which one of the three camps it came from. But in 1936, Ipswich Labour Club had uh, bought it from the the army. The army had taken it down. The Royal Engineers had taken it to Ipswich and put it up for them. And actually, when we took it down, the whole lot was still finger tight. We didn't need a spanner on any of it. The the engineers had gone, oh, that'll do them. And... um, and, and suddenly we realised that we didn't need to use replica huts, we could use the real thing. And that then started us off on really a, a massive First World War heritage project, uh, rescuing all different types of huts. Uh, we, we've got quite a few that came from quite quite far away from Tring in Hertfordshire, from Brockton in Staffordshire. Although what we do now, uh, we do concentrate on local ones because... The cost of going to get the huts, which are a long way away, you have to take a team of people, you've got to feed them, you've got to put them up. And then at the end, you've got, then got to get a, a lorry and a trailer to bring it all back. So suddenly you're like, hang about, we're three, four £4,000 down before we started the restoration. Whereas now, everything that's within an hour of here, so Girton Women's Institute, uh, Stone Market, Girl Guides Hut, these are all things that we can just leave home in the morning, go take it down. <laughs> and we're very, very lucky, one of our supporters... Um, Tony Henwood at Stowmarket Market uh, runs a haulage company and he's got a lovely restored 1968 Atkinson lorry that he restored himself. And he's very happy all the stuff that's within an hour from here. He'll come and pick it all up, bring it back for nothing. And that's his contribution to the project. So it's um, a it, massive learning curve, all of it. But, um, but along the way, we've, we've learned an awful lot and had a lot of great people help us get where we are so far.
0: I mean how has it been because this must take so much funding in a way you have to be raising money trying to, trying to before you can do the next step and so on.
1: Yes yes is the answer to all of the above. It's um I mean basically khaki devil the uniform and equipment hire business effectively bankrolls this. Um so when you mentioned earlier that I that I I, I you know, I've made a living out of this I wouldn't be entirely sure there's much of a living in it but it's uh, it's certainly um it's certainly how, it, you know, at this stage in the game, this is how it needs to work. Kharky Devil basically employs me and Kev Smith. Kev doesn't do anything for Kharky Devil in terms of uniforms unless I'm really desperate. But he is here to restore buildings and virtually everything that you can see here that wasn't here before we arrived has been down to Kev on his own or Kev with one person or two people helping him most of the time. Occasionally, high days and holidays, there'll be a whole team of us go out to sort of get the main frame up or something like that. But it's literally biting away, nibble a bit here, nibble a bit there and... I mean, I, I marvel at them, really. I mean, I, I, Kev and his brother Barry and uh, Paul, the volunteer, two Pauls, we've got volunteers, and Alan and all the others. I mean, they're, they're, it's remarkable what they achieve. It really is. And, uh, and Mark, who now comes and does, uh, he, he's, he's working on the picnic area. That's his thing. So we've got all these wonderful people that come and just make it happen. And yes, absolutely, it needs chunks of money every now and again, so we'll do events, we'll put on fundraisers, occasionally we'll get donations. Uh, I mean, we were very lucky for quite some time. We had a lovely lady, uh, Marion Phillips, who was married to one of our Suffolk Regiment Malaya veterans, and when the Malaya veterans got to the stage, they were all in their 80s and 90s. They said to her, Marion, we, we just don't need any money anymore, we don't go anywhere you should find somewhere else to raise money for. And she rang me up and said, would you mind if I raise money for Great Wall Hats? <laughs> well, yeah, go on then, <laughs> talk us into it. Um, and uh, sadly, Marion died just before Christmas. But, but the lovely thing was she would put on an event in, in Wisbeach where she lived. She would get all of her local lady friends. They would have a, a wonderful afternoon playing bingo, doing all this fundraising stuff. We wouldn't know anything about it till a week later she would turn up with a cheque. And it wasn't until she unveiled the cheque that that's the first time we knew what she'd raised. It was nearly almost £1,000 thereabouts. Yeah. And all Marion wanted in exchange was the next time she came, she said, right, what did I pay for last time? Right, well, you put the roof on this, you put the floor in that, you put the walls in this. And that was her reward, the fact that she could see where the money had gone and what it was, you know, what it was, what it was doing. Um, and that's really been the nature of it. We, you know, we've been incredibly lucky. Um, we've had some great donations. Uh, a lot of people give us building materials, um, like I said, Darshan Village Hall, we couldn't save Darsham Village Hall. By the time it was ready to come down, it was too late in the year. Uh, but the company taking it down, who were due to demolish it to put up the new village hall, rang me up and said, look, it's going to cost a fortune for us to have it destroyed. Is the building materials any use to you, you know, if we take it apart? we We, we know you can't save it because we'll have to cut it up quite crudely. But it was cheaper for them to put it on six lorries and bring it here. And then it meant that over the pandemic we 'd got a, a well effectively two huts worth of materials that the fellas went through, they de-nailed it, they took all the rotten stuff away, and they they then dry stored all the bits that we could use um, and it 's been incredibly useful, so all of that timber that you 'd have to buy we 've just been able to go to the store and pull out original first world war one hundred year old timbers and use that for repair or making things, so things like the sentry box is is all one hundred year old timber. Um, made in the same way it would have been 100 years ago. So,
0: it's, it's a, so for Marion, she's, it's a great legacy she has left. And, yes. and you're leaving as well. Do you, have, do you have a vision of what you <laughs> want it to look like or is it just is it evolution?
1: I mean, I think we've got a very clear direction of travel. I mean, a lot of people say to us, well, you know, why aren't you applying for lottery money and all this kind of thing? And the, the trouble with all of those is that they, it, it comes with conditions. I get the reason it comes with conditions. It comes with conditions because it's public money. But the problem is that, that we very clearly want to go in one direction and very often we'll be right we'll give you all this money but you've you've got to go over there at 90 degrees from where you want to go um and we really don't want to do that um i mean a lot of the time it says oh you know it, you you you've got to have all this wizzy touchscreen technology for the kids and we know what kids like you know because they come here we you, you don't need the wizzy stuff you know real things and stuff will fire the imagination just as much as anything else. In fact, worse, I mean, I've built touchscreen interactives for museums, and I will stand in museums and watch how the public interact with them. And you'll see they'll come in, they'll see lots and lots of words written on a wall, they'll ignore all of that until they see something in a glass case. You'll have a touchscreen screen, whizzy touchscreen interactive thing, the kids will turn up and they'll go, do you know what, this isn't as good as my phone or my PlayStation, and then they'll walk up, walk away. Then the old timers turn up and they go, I can't make this work, and then they'll walk off. So it hasn't worked for any of them. But things and stuff, real things, real stuff always does, you know. Like, you... like the gas alarm. Well, that's right, exactly that. You, you, you literally have had that in your hands. You, you, you've heard how it sounds, you, you've seen it, you've understood it, you've got it, you know, and you don't need a, a fancy whizzy box to pretend that. And the same way, I mean, we had um, deaf pupils here uh, uh, last week or so, uh, learning all about First World War uniforms. They'd been working on a project with the Suffolk Archives, been looking at First World War uniforms in black and white photographs. Well, suddenly, they could see the real thing. They could see hospital, soldiers in hospital in convalescent uniforms, which were bright blue with with a red tie and a white shirt, which they would never have got looking at the photograph. And suddenly they were picking it up. They were holding it. They were wearing it. And... It gives them a completely different view and why on earth do you need to create a a virtual version of that when you can have the real stuff and they're saying what this this thing that I've got in my hand was 100 years old yeah exactly and that's the buzz that's what got people like me and Kev into the first world war in the first place and it still works you don't need to you don't need to create a virtual version of it you really don't
0: why is it so important to you Taff
1: I mean I think that (laughs) <laughs> One of the things that's driven this from my point of view and Kev's as well, I'm sure, is that for 30 years with the Khaki Chums, which was a group that I ran of historians, collectors, authors, experts in all sorts of aspects of military history. We would go to France and Belgium uh, and Holland sometimes wearing First, Second War uniforms, uh, not as a public display in the way that living history and reenactment groups do, but it was a learning thing. We wanted to learn ourselves what it was like to wear it, why the, the manual would say that you have to wear a certain piece of kit in a certain place, and when you looked at the photographs, clearly nobody at the time did that, and you wear it and you understand it. Oh, well, it's much more comfortable like this. And over the years, time and time and time again, particularly the First War veterans, were always very disappointed at how they were portrayed in the media, uh, in the news, in in books, in newspapers, because... They'd fought in the First World War and they completely got it. They, they understood that they'd achieved something quite remarkable, which had literally been forgotten about from the 1960s onwards. And, and history had quite literally been rewritten. And it, 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 it'd be, it, it, the equivalent would be a. If you imagine a, a very, very uh, well-respected footballer, a, an Ipswich Town footballer perhaps who'd, who'd, who'd been really good at what he did, he'd, maybe he'd gone on and he'd, he'd got caps for England and he'd scored lots of goals. And if you said to him, OK, so, you know, you're a very successful footballer, you've scored all these goals, you've played for your country, you know, the, the fans love you, the managers think you're great. But if you then said to him, you imagine a time in, in 50, 75, 100 years time when every single time your name was mentioned in the press or in the news or in a book or on a television documentary, the only thing they ever mentioned were the games you lost, the goals you missed and the times you were sent off. How would you feel about that? Because that is what we've done to the men who won the First World War. That's literally what we've done to them, and their memory. And it's shameful, it really is. People at work in television keep saying to me, oh, no, no, it's wrong, we have to give people what they expect. But you really don't. I mean, Reith, Sir John Reith, all those years ago, you know, never underestimate the knowledge that people have and give them something new. People desperately want to hear something that they don't know. But every time anybody makes a drama or a documentary about the First World War, they tell the same story over and over and over again with a tiny twist. But the minute that you say to people, actually, that's all nonsense. Look, here's a much more interesting story. They absolutely lap it up. I say people keep saying to it, oh, no, people people only want this very, very narrow view. Well, they don't. We see it every day. We see it every week, every month when the people come here on visits. They're fascinated because it isn't what they thought it was. They've learned something new and they will then go away and they will take that to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. In fact, obviously, I've mentioned education. We do education with the kids. It's great fun. But the level of education here at Great Wall Huts isn't going to be aimed at school kids it's going to be aimed at the type of people that go to museums it's aimed at people who are in their 50s and above because they are the people that go to museums they come back time and time again they tell other people and they want to learn something new you know that the school pupils are brilliant that we love them they're great but they've come because someone's put them on a coach and brought them here but those that come of their own free will they want to learn something different they really want to get something out of it and that's what we're going to give them.
0: My sincere thanks to Taff Gillingham for that mini tour of the Great War Hut site at Horstead for this Suffolk Money Remembrance podcast. And if you want to find out more about what there is to see and do there, just visit their website www greatwarhuts.org. And if you want to know more about what we do, visit us at www.suffordmoney.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook and elsewhere on social media. And please do subscribe to our podcasts. It'll be great to have you as one of our regulars. Thanks to the team who get everything together. That's Sally and Kevin Birch and Joy Day. And thank you, of course, to you for listening. Until the next time. Bye.